Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, December 28th. So we all know that the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol released its final report last week, but that's hardly the end of the story. Historian Julian Zelizer says the lessons of Watergate tell us now the real work begins. In a New York Times opinion piece, maybe you saw it, he writes, as with the Watergate roadmap, the January 6th report doesn't put an end to the crisis of American democracy. He joins us now to assess the work that Congress and the DOJ should do heading into the new year. We are also joined by Jill Wine-Banks, the U.S. Department of Justice's assistant Watergate special prosecutor during the Watergate scandal, who will offer up, I'm sure, some important historical context and help us understand how and why the former president should be held accountable for his role in the January 6th attack and compare it to Nixon. Jill Wine-Banks is also an MSNBC contributor and legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President, which came out in 2020. Julian Zelizer is professor of history and public affairs at Princeton, a CNN political analyst, NPR contributor, and author of The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment, and of a forthcoming book, called Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Jill and and Julian, welcome back to WNYC. Welcome back, both of you. Thanks for having us. So, Jill, take us back some 50 years to the aftermath of the Watergate scandal and the debate over how to hold the president and his co-conspirators accountable. Nixon, as we know, had to resign the presidency which many people considered punishment enough, but he was never prosecuted for what many people considered crimes. So what went into those deliberations? Well, there were a uh, variety of opinions on the staff of the Watergate special prosecutor. I was for indicting Richard Nixon while he was the sitting president and then raised that issue again right after he resigned. Uh, Leon Jaworski opposed that position. And while we were discussing it after he resigned, when Leon was more inclined to accept that position, he got pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford, and that ended the possibility of indictment. He was named an unindicted co-conspirator in the indictment. And so in a way, he did get some accountability through the trial of his co-conspirators, but he did not get indicted. And um, as you said, Gerald Ford and many others thought that it needed to be ended and that's why he pardoned him. I think that was the wrong decision and we're seeing the historical uh, result now. If he had been indicted, he would have been convicted in the same way that if he had gone to trial in the Senate, he would have been convicted. And that would have ended the discussion today about can you or can you not 
indict mm -hmm. a former president? Mm -hmm. Can you hold someone accountable for crimes committed while in office? And the answer would have been clearly yes. Yeah. Um, I just want to add one other thing, which is you mentioned the roadmap. And the roadmap in the context of Watergate was a document that we prepared to give to the House Judiciary Committee, which was doing the impeachment inquiry. So it was us giving them the evidence as a roadmap to impeachment versus in this case where the House committee is giving the Department of Justice a roadmap. And that's a very different circumstance. You know, Julian, I saw the presidential historian Michael Beschloss on television the other day saying not prosecuting Nixon might have seemed like a good thing at the time. Uh, our long national nightmare is over, I think was what Gerald Ford said. And uh, resigning the presidency was considered consequences enough, consequence enough by many people, accountability enough. Uh, but that that doesn't wear well over time because of the lack of precedent that it sets for Donald Trump, who allegedly has committed much worse things than Richard Nixon even did. Do you agree with Michael Beschloss about that? I think there's a strong argument to be made that when President Gerald Ford decided uh, to pardon Nixon, it was choosing at least an imagined path toward healing the nation, which isn't actually what happened, uh, over accountability. And that when you miss the chance to impose accountability, when it's viable, uh, when the political circumstances are, are right, um, you leave things undone. And I do think uh, kind of the Nixon case is, is a famous one with the president and the individual where things were not resolved. And I do believe that since that time, uh, there's been a high cost. And, and I'll add, he didn't heal the nation. Uh, the nation, you know, moved further apart. Gerald Ford's own standing plummeted after he issued this pardon. So it didn't even work the way he anticipated. Jill, um, as we look at the January 6th, convictions and prosecutions that are taking place and that they're all so far of pretty low level individuals, right? The, just those who heeded the call to come to the Capitol that day and took the step of breaking in uh, or trying to obstruct the proceedings, things like that. When we look back at Watergate, some of the high ranking officials of the Nixon administration did go to trial, did go to prison, even if Nixon himself didn't, right? We're not seeing that yet with January 6th, but that happened in Watergate, didn't it? It did happen, and it is what must happen here. Uh, I, as I said, I am all for indicting, assuming that there is nothing in the evidence that we don't know that would be exculpatory, mm -hmm. based on the evidence that is available to you and me and Julian right now. The Evidence seems to be clear that there have been crimes committed and that there needs to be accountability for that. But yes, the chief of staff, the chief of domestic policy, the former attorney general um, all went to jail. The White House counsel went to jail. Um, so all of those people went to jail on the same crimes for which Richard Nixon was guilty and was a co-conspirator. There's no question about his guilt. And the evidence was very strong, very clear. And in that era, we had bipartisanship, which would have allowed 
a conviction without fear of a civil war or some other violent outbreak as a result of it. Uh, I hope we can get back to facts mattering, which is what happened back then. We also only had basically three networks. There was no social media. There were no cable news shows. Hmm. And so all the networks had the same facts. There was no disagreement about what was reality. Whereas now you have people actually believing totally made up information, completely false. And people aren't reading the actual documents. If they would look at not just this report, but also the underlying information, read the transcripts. The transcripts are devastating. That's one of the things that maybe is even more impressive than the actual 845-page report is the actual transcripts and listening um, by reading them to the words of Republicans, of people who worked in the White House, who talk about the crimes that were being committed. Julian, for you as a historian and listeners, if you're just joining us, we're talking about January 6th, sort of through a Watergate lens. The prosecutor meets the historian, Jill Wine-Banks, who was a Watergate prosecutor, and Princeton historian Julian Zelizer. You, you wrote in your op-ed um, in The Times, it took almost a decade to set in place a suite of laws to deal with the toxic foundation of Nixon's presidency. So that's not just about who goes to jail for Watergate. That's about something structural. So what happened then, and what question do you think it raises for now? Yeah, I mean, there were two streams of issues. One was Nixon and the individual connected to the presidency. Do you have uh, accountability? And that's a large part of the January 6th report. But then there was a second question in the 1970s. How do you fix the system? How do you deal with some of the underlying factors that allowed Nixon to do um, what he did? Kind of what were the roots of the imperial presidency? And the 70s is a really interesting period in that you have this coalition of uh, good government reform organizations like Common Cause, legislators uh, on, on Capitol Hill often uh, referred to as the Watergate babies, uh, people who were elected in 1974 and were committed to making the system better, and investigative reporters. And they pushed for uh, legislation for years. Um, and although it wasn't perfect, uh, there were a lot of important bills that get through in the 70s, including campaign finance reform in 1974, uh, reform to the intelligence uh, system in 1978, uh, before Nixon steps down, war powers resolution, budgeting reform, ethics and government reform, and much, much more. And the point was, uh, reformers understood that you can't always contain uh, or anticipate bad behavior uh, by elected officials. So part of the challenge is how do you strengthen the democratic system? And, and I think that's a question right before Congress today. Um, there was one uh, initial success with uh, reform that passed last week of uh, the Electoral um, Account Reform Act, which tries to close some of the holes that Trump wanted to exploit. Uh, but much more needs to be done uh, from uh, voting rights uh, to additional protections of how the electoral count actually works. Unless we do that, I think we're perpetually uh, going to be uh, in a dangerous place. Jill, anything you want to add about the reforms that Watergate brought 
or ones you're yes. looking for after January 6th? Uh, let me talk first about the the ones from Watergate, which um, definitely included campaign uh, reforms that were essential because without so much un, uh, unaccountable money, Watergate wouldn't have happened. The White House had hundreds of thousands of dollars, which back then was like millions of dollars, in safes in the White House that they could use for anything. And so they used it for stupid things like the Watergate break-in, which if they were making decisions based on limited resources, they would have never used it for that. But that was undone by the Supreme Court in Citizens United. So the protections that we got in that legislation have been undone, and Congress hasn't found a way to reform uh, the campaign system. Um, I would say the, the other big difference is that even with the Electoral Count Act reform, which is wonderful and was very much needed, was one of the most obvious things that was needed, that can only cure what has already happened. They have stopped the gaps that were trying to be exploited by Trump and his colleagues. But what happens when you have bad, immoral people in office, they will think of new ways around existing laws. And I, I think, as Julian said, you cannot always predict what the new ways around are. The only way around that is electing people of good moral character and not people who are liars. Your last segment, you were talking about Santos and his lies. Um, if he's in Congress, he can't be trusted any more than Donald Trump, who has a history of lying, can be trusted. So we have to focus on better candidates. That doesn't mean we don't add all the laws that we can possibly add that might stop this. But who would have ever predicted a president would try to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power? That's something that is so unlikely that no law existed to stop it in the same way that there's no enforcement to the Emoluments Clause, because we never really thought a president would do what Donald Trump did. And so we need to fix all of those things that we now know about. But predicting what future evil may come is a little harder. Jill, you've got a fan out there, maybe a new fan. I can't tell for sure. Listener tweets, love this guest, too legit. Nixon prosecutor. Uh, but then he asks, what about the complicit Congress people who voted for Trump's coup? If Trump is being charged or the committee is suggesting that he be charged with uh, not just inciting violence, but basically staging some kind of coup through these legal machinations that he was trying to pull, what about all the Congress people that voted to try to implement it? Absolutely, there is culpability for some of them. There is a problem with the speech and debate clause and holding people accountable for their vote on the floor. That could be a problem. But many of them did much more than that. Think of all the people who were texting and trying to interfere, who were contacting uh, members of state legislatures to have them interfere, people who were helping with the uh, planning of the fake electors. All of those people, it's not, not just members of Congress, although it, obviously it includes members of Congress, um, but beyond the members of Congress, there were many people involved. And, you know, the Department of Justice is starting to move up the chain now. 
Um, you've had the leaders of you know, militia groups on trial and convicted of seditious conspiracy. There are more underway right now. And the, the um, subpoenas that have been issued indicate that the Department of Justice is finally, I mean, it's, it's late to the game, but they are finally taking action. And I just want people listening to remember that the Department of Justice has a much higher standard. When the committee reports out, it lets us know what it knows based on whatever standards it has. But in a courtroom, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt and with admissible evidence. So compelling as some of the testimony was, it isn't necessarily admissible evidence. Cassidy mm -hmm. Hutchison mm -hmm. is hearsay. That's not admissible in a courtroom. So you need to get Ornato to say what happened, not what somebody else said he the, said. The, the secret um, service agent who so that's Trump a problem. maybe tried to commandeer the steel wheel, steering wheel of the car from. Ellen in Nyack wants to talk about Ford pardoning Nixon. Ellen, you're on WNYC. Hello. Oh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, this is something I've, I've wanted to discuss for many years, but ne never thought uh, I could. But, but in terms of this discussion, I think it's important. In, uh, during the time when uh, Ford was pardoning Nixon, I was part of a, a women's group. We were very close. We, we met quite frequently. And one of the women in the group had a father who was very high up in the Ford administration. And he had told her something that he, he swore her to secrecy, but she told us, which was that the reason that Ford pardoned Nixon was because Nixon had threatened to reveal uh, military nuclear secrets to the Russians, to other state, uh, uh, hostile state, uh, organizations, and they were too afraid that he was a loose cannon and would actually do that. You and mean that if they prosecuted the him, he would do that? Yes, yes. He, uh, that, that he was, uh, in effect, blackmailing the uh, Ford administration with uh, revealing state secrets if anything uh, negative happened. Gee, a disgraced president but, taking home state secrets. Where have I heard that before? Ju Julian Zelizer, as you, as a historian, have you ever heard that theory before? I've heard a lot of theories on the pardon. I mean, there's other theories that were very uh, alive at the time that this was part of a corrupt deal of how Gerald Ford even became vice president. And the pardon was the payback. And that was front page accusations at, at the time. What I saw in the archives kind of accords more with what Ford was saying. Um, and, and I'm not sure he was right in, in his logic, but this effort to kind of move beyond that window, his fear that uh, criminal, um, uh, you know, a prosecution would kind of open up more wounds in the country and be unending and get very ugly politically was what I saw him and his advisors talking about. But again, there is no shortage of theories. And, and this was part of why Ford's own reputation gets undermined. I mean, at the time, his popularity is very high before he pardons Nixon. People are excited about his presidency. They're feeling maybe he is the person who could restore some normalcy. And as soon as he does that, the polls plummet, these kinds of stories surface, and people see Ford very much 
as connected to Watergate as opposed mm. to an antidote to Watergate. Interesting. We've just got a minute left. Julian, I'll give you the last word because you write in your New York Times op-ed uh, that though we have been talking in this conversation about lessons from Watergate for the post-January 6th era, that the problems that the January 6th committee report highlights are different in nature from the problems of Watergate. So in addition to all the similarities we've discussed, very briefly, what do you see as the biggest differences? The biggest difference is uh, it's connected to presidential power, but it's also about the democratic system itself. And it's looking much more closely at everything uh, from the way we count the votes to the power that state legislatures have over the vote count uh, to I still think voting rights and money and politics is part of the whole agenda. But it's about the democracy, not just the presidency. And we need to keep an eye on all the problems that had been discussed before the midterms. Uh, they are not healed. They are still very much there. And that's where reform is essential. And we thank Princeton historian Julian Zelizer, author of books including his forthcoming Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and former Watergate prosecutor Jill Wine-Banks, author of The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. She is also the co-host of the podcasts, Sisters-in-Law, and iGen Politics. You like how I emphasize law there? So this is not your family. This is because you're a former prosecutor, sisters-in-law. And uh, so there are the podcasts. Jill and Julian, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.